Hello and welcome to another episode of I Could Never Be Here on Popcorn Talk. You guys, we have some amazing motivation and inspiration coming your way today. One of the world leaders in market research is joining us. She started off at Nielsen before starting her own company, OTX, that literally influenced where hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising went. She sold that company for $80 million back in 2010 before founding the Girls' Lounge, which is an organization, or maybe better put, a family that helps women in business. Please welcome Shelly Zalis. Thank you. That just made me smile. I loved I loved that intro and how you called it a family. Isn't it great? Because any business successful story is a family. You have to have that relationship. Well, I, I think so. I mean, you know, the Girls' Lounge really went from a moment to movement by accident, and we mm-hmm. can talk about that, and is now under the umbrella of the female quotient. But when you talk about family, I really talk about creating a culture of care. You know, to me, the best leaders today do treat their employees like family. You know, how would you want your family treated? And that's how you should really create the culture in your organization, whether you have 10 people or, you know, 100 million people. Absolutely, absolutely. And for people who want to, you know, learn more about the Girls' Lounge, I want to be able to highlight uh, for yourself, your social media is at Shelly Zellis. And also at the Girls' Lounge. And at the Girls' Lounge. If you would love to be able to find some more information, you can find me at The Only MC. We appreciate everyone joining us live on YouTube. We're live on YouTube every Monday at 410 And anyone who's joining us on iTunes, we appreciate you guys. Please rate, comment, give us five stars, tell your friends. We love sharing positivity. That's what what the world should be more about, right? Well, I think positivity brings more positivity. Yes. You know, like why do we need to have a negative conversation? You know, someone once told me something that is just so true. A lot of marriage counseling talks about all the bad things in the relationship, which only pisses you off more, (laughs) right? I mean, if you talk about the bad things that you don't like about each other, it just makes you more, it makes you angrier. Versus if you talked about the good things in your relationship of what you like, it makes you more positive and happier. It's why why I have to stay off Twitter, you know, half the days now, because you never know what you're going to find out and what people are going to be commenting on 140 characters but let's focus on, again, something positive, the Girls' Lounge. You said started kind of on accident, not necessarily wanting to launch this big organization. Well, I mean, I went from the business of online research. I was the the mother of online research, mm-hmm. migrating research from offline to online to now the business of equality. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a conscious decision. I didn't study equality in school. Um, it was just one of those what I call heartbeat moments where – I realized that my whole career in market research, I knew I always thought differently. I certainly was called the chief troublemaker. I broke (laughs) all the rules, not because I wanted to. You know, it's not easy to to be different, but Mm -hmm. I was different. Mm -hmm. And um, I I wanted to give back to other women what I wish I had rising the ranks. And I was the only female CEO in the top 25 my whole career. And so I had to find my way by myself. And... A, that's not fun, you know, to do mm-hmm. it by yourself. And, and B, you don't have the same impact. And, you did, know, go ahead. Did the attitude change, you know, when you started the Girls' Arms? Is this an attitude to be able to help people that you kind of always had or maybe noticed and it grew on you as you rose through the ranks and saw that there were not many other women? You know what? I, I now have 17,000 best friends that are all women in corporate America. Wow. Actually, in, in, in corporations at large because mm-hmm. we're global. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it started 
when a few years ago I wanted to go to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and I heard that there was you know over 150,000 people with less than six percent you know women attending, and so it was kind of intimidating. Even though I was a badass CEO in market research. I didn't want to go by myself to this yeah. trade show in Vegas. So I invited four girlfriends, and I said, let's go together. And if you have other girlfriends that are going, invite them. And 24 hours later, 50 women showed up. And two remarkable things happened. One, all the guys' heads turned. You know, here we were, 50 power women walking the floor in a tech show, and all the guys were like, wow, where'd you all come from? And that's when I coined the phrase, power the pack. A woman alone has mm. power. Collectively, like we have that. impact. We had impact. It was yeah. one of those... Oh, wow moments and the second was a confidence moment where we coined the phrase confidence is beautiful i was surrounded by women that had similar challenges similar issues you know why are we hiding our greatest strengths because Mm -hmm. we don't think they're recognized or rewarded and when you put us all together you know a more business deals were done than at the conference itself Mm -hmm. and this collaboration and this connection and this authentic relationship like a family like you said kind of grew and that's how the girls lounge was born and day one we started in a um, we went back to my hotel room which was a king-size bedroom and we had women in the closet doing deals with everyone else <laughs> and by day, day two we had a two-bedroom suite in the hotel and by day three we had the penthouse wow and we had 350 women and it just really spoke to the fact that you know it's nice to have this space mm-hmm. where we can all share unguarded in this safe space that we can talk about everything and then create some ideas for how can we activate solutions for change for this next generation. So that's really how it was born. If you don't connect, I feel, then it's easy to feel alone and not even just like alone, like physically, but alone thinking I'm the only one who's facing this issue. I'm the only one who's going through this. And the more you connect, you find out that's not true. Well, also, you know, it's so powerful. Imagine, you know, a person alone is kind of invisible, but collectively you can't miss us. And I think, you know, one of the things that is remarkable, I don't, have you ever seen a crossing in Africa, like when the animals migrate Mm-mm. and then they cross the river? No. Well, they do it in a pack. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of wildebeest, you know, in, wow. in, 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 in these, you know, crossing the river to find, you know, watery and greenery. But they don't cross unless they all cross together. And so you see them going along their journey, dipping their toe, and then it takes that one brave wildebeest that actually crosses the river and the rest all follow. And Mm -hmm. I don't think they'd be able to cross without the pack. And, you know, to me in today's day and age, it is not about competition. It is about collaboration. And I think we're all better off holding hands and doing it together and finding our unique Still, skill sets, our unique mm-hmm. strengths, and, and bringing those all front and center. Well, you were that brave individual at the at the front of the pack, you know, stepping your foot in the water. And by the end of that conference, you know, you're saying 350 women. Did you know at that point, hey, this is something we can continue. This is something we can grow upon. I just knew it felt good, you know, and that it was um, wonderful to be at this male-dominated industry conference and have this space that all of us women would be at. And, and it wasn't just about you know, connecting was about having really important, unplugged, authentic conversations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, transformation must include men. Gender equality is not a female issue. It's a social and economic issue. And so I put the girls under the female quotient, which really is in the business of equality. Mm -hmm. And then the second pillar is called the equation, where we build measurement for change and for accountability. 
and I do a lot of boot camps with leaders inside of companies, men and women, to really help close the wage gap and to eliminate bias and to create a culture of care so that not only do we attract the best talent, but we also retain the best talent because women tend mm-hmm. to fall off in middle management. Yeah, and that's something that I found you know particularly interesting in listening to other works and other interviews that you've done is that that kind of viewpoint, which I, I, I guess I never realized, or maybe this you never actually see it, maybe if you put it on paper you realize it, that you said it starts out fairly even, but then it breaks away. Yeah. Why is that? Or maybe talk about that. Well, I mean, we call it the messy middle. And, you know, we start about 50-50. Actually, mm-hmm. women graduate college at about 51%, so slightly mm-hmm. higher. Um, but And then we end at about 17 to 19% in the C-suite, you know, at the, yeah. the top levels. We fall off in middle management, so we really call it the messy middle. It's a period in life where women are gaining more responsibility at home, more responsibility at work. We have the work-life balance issues, can't juggle it all. We might start having children at that age and... Mm-hmm women are still the predominant caregiver in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we have lots of challenges. Um, and not to say that women that don't have children don't have similar challenges. Mm-hmm. Theirs are just a little different. Wage gap is real for all women, you know, no matter mm-hmm. what across the board. I actually was thinking, you know, I've been in business over 35 years. I wonder if I went back and saw how much I got paid relative to <laughs> my male counterparts. I probably owed a lot of money. <laughs> to think about that um, but we actually sell candy for a um, dollar to men and 79 cents to women yeah. in in our lounges just to sensationalize the issue of how silly mm-hmm. the wage gap is mm-hmm. and you, you really it, empowering these women as well and talk about maybe what goes on at the conferences and now it's amazing you started off at ces one year and now you're ces every year you're at south by southwest you're in various countries it's amazing. Yeah, it is remarkable. I mean, the impact is enormous, and it's gone. It's become infectious, you know, mm-hmm. something that we all want now. And I think if there weren't a lounge at big industry conferences, we would all miss it um, because it became the home for women at conferences. So we've connected women in marketing, media, advertising, research, technology. And a couple of years ago, we were invited to the World Economic Forum in Davos with world leaders. Wow. Um, we have equality lounges there. It's leaders, men and women. Mm-hmm having conversations. But we typically have all kinds of things in a lounge from power conversations where, you know, plenty of men come talking about how to activate solutions for change and also talking about some of the challenges that we have as women, including why do we hide our greatest assets, our feminine qualities, um, and why are we not showcasing them, and why are they not recognized and rewarded. And, you know, my favorite quote from Sarah Jessica Parker, trying to be a man is a waste of a woman. We need the masculine and the feminine, you know, inside of a company for business to truly realize its maximum potential of business success. Um, so, I, you know, we, I, we're we all over the place now, and we've connected so many women. So we have power conversations. We also do um, confidence coaching. So on how to, you know, women sometimes don't like to brag about themselves, you know, to create a bragalog or, you know, to talk about yourself with the strengths that mm-hmm. you have. Um, we also do... Um, you know, all kinds of just 
team building, but in an authentic way. It's not putting people together. We do mentorship in the moment. So, you know, people can just meet plenty of other people. And we don't have badges or name tags. I don't want women to meet other women because they're a certain, you know, seniority inside of a company or they're at a certain company. I want women yeah. just to meet other women and discover them that because they're just so it, interesting. That can give you give a, an ulterior motive to wanting to meet someone. Yeah, there's, like, absolutely no motive. And women just come and go and really feel comfortable there. So it really has become the home for women at big industry conferences. Have you learned a lot the past, you know, five years that this has been going on, that even stuff that you didn't realize, but by being able to meet with all these women, be able to have these conferences? Yeah, I, listen, my whole life changed. I mean, I, I know that the impact for other women, you know, I have plenty of women that told me they've moved into COO positions because of the relationships that they created in the girls' lounge or because of the fearlessness that they, you know, kind of felt that you can be whatever you want to be and just ask. Don't wait for someone to give you the raise. If you feel you deserve it, go and ask. And, you know, another woman said, she and she's top of her game at a big Fortune 500 company, she said she felt so much confidence after being in the lounge for so long and getting bold and brave. You know, as a result, she went in to her boss and asked for a title that really was important to her. And I said, so what did he say? So he gave it to me. You know, you don't ask, you don't know. And you never know. You never know. And so it really is just encouraging women to be themselves, own their strengths, celebrate it, get rid of that voice in your head. You know, we say shut that bitch up when it tells you <laughs> that you can or can't do something. We can be whatever, you know, mm-hmm. we imagine. And, you know, the whole bossy thing, you know, Sheryl Sandberg is a good friend of mine, and I love what she does. You know, she asks a room of people with men and women, you know, she'll ask the men, have, ever, have any of you ever been told you're bossy? And not a single man will raise his hand. And then mm. she'll say, have any of you women ever been told you're bossy? And every single woman <laughs> raises their hand, you know, front and center. And she says, you're not bossy. You have executive presence. And I think that that is just such an important aspect for women to internalize and believe that they can also be whatever they can imagine. And, you know, we do need to create some new rules in culture because mm-hmm. that, you know, flexibility and schedules. And, you know, if you do have children at home, it does create some challenges mm-hmm. of traveling and working until midnight. You know, you said you yeah. work from 7 a.m. to Today's a busy one. <laughs> to midnight. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't quite work that way. So we, we do need to reimagine the rules. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to, to talk more about those rules, but I love, you know, kind of what you said about you know, being able to see other people in power. And so many people look up to you as your experience. Like I said, literally influencing where hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising was going and being, you know, the only female CEO of the top 25 in market research your entire career. Do you feel pressure? Did you feel pressure when you were in that position? You know, I really um, had to find my own way. I was known of course, I was a CEO, and you know, I, I sold a couple of companies, but I was really known as the chief troublemaker because I, <laughs> I would break a lot of rules because they just didn't work for me, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that it would be my responsibility to give back to others. Why should everyone have to, you know, break the rules and mm-hmm. be, you know, the black sheep? You know, I was the black sheep that, yeah. thank God, became you know a white sheep, and mm-hmm. I built a lifestyle company before I even knew what that was. But I created the uncorporate rules. You know, I broke every rule that I hated about corporate America when I had my own company and created new rules that I would want to go by so that everybody would become the new norm and not the exception. Has, has there always been a business woman inside of you? Like when you were younger, I mean, back before, uh, you know, OTX and back before Nielsen and 
getting back to as a kid, did you want to do business? Did you inspire to kind of form a company? No. I actually um, thought I'd be a full-time mom once I had children and be PTA president and work on nonprofits. And, you know, um, that's really what I thought because I couldn't even imagine how I was going to juggle, you know, a career and, you know, a family. Um, did you have a business mind or think, did you have any business as a kid, you know, lemonade stand or something else? I think I always had interesting ideas, but I I never had the lemonade stand. You know, I I, I was never an entrepreneur as a as a young kid, and I didn't do STEM. And you know, I was a Girl Scout. Yeah. You know, I got badges and stuff. <laughs> so I, I was a Girl Scout. But no, I really uh, when I when I started market research, I fell into it from college because I needed mm-hmm. a job. And you know, I always say when you do something, when you work and you don't love it, it's called stress. When you work and you love it, it's called passion. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, my motto in life is when purpose meets passion, you're unstoppable. And I always was migrating crazy traditional research techniques with a new twist. You know, I was on an airplane once, and I was testing 30-second spots. That's what I did in research Mm -hmm. in my traditional world. And I'm on an airplane, and I see this guy, like, selling, peddling Godiva chocolates. On the airplane? On the airplane. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Like, who is this man? And... Next thing he's you know, a, of course, he's a genius. Hey, genius! And next thing <laughs> you know, he's sitting next to me on the plane, and I'm like, "Well, who are you? Like, you just got up and commanded, you know, the the cabin here, <laughs> you know, selling chocolates." And he goes, "Well, I'm, I'm in infomercials." And six hours on the plane, I learned everything about infomercials with how you can sell a product in half an hour with, you know, three regurgitated pods of, you know, six minutes each, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was, and a call to action. And, you know, and I'm like, that's fascinating. So of course I went back to fortune 500 to traditional companies. I said, let's do an infomercial with your products and teach people how to buy products, you know, more of them. And so I migrated marketers from, you know, 30-second spots to 30-minute programming with call-to-actions. And we worked on everything from cars to um, Microsoft. I started working on infomercials in 1998, launching Windows 98 with Microsoft. I remember I remember um, that. It was always like the next Windows, 2098, Yeah, 95. we were teaching people how to use computers, which was really quite amazing. And then I thought, wow, why are we spending all this money to create infomercials? Let's move that to websites. So we started creating 200-page websites mm-hmm. for brands. And then I thought, well, gosh, we don't create programs to advertise in. Why are we creating websites to advertise in? Let's take those little pieces of the websites and move them to other people's content sites. And Mm -hmm. that's when we created ads online with interstitials and split screens and microsites, you know, et cetera. And then I was like, well, gosh, why don't we do research on the Internet? And that's when that big idea came to me. And it was another heartbeat moment where I thought, wow, let's move research from paper, pencil, or telephone online. And no one believed I was right. For the future. It, it was it was ahead of itself, mm-hmm. and when I talked to the company that I was at, which was you know um, early days, they said it's not the right time because nobody w- is online except wealthy old men with broadband. But it was that moment where I had to own my voice and my strength again and say, where you were the individual at the front of the pack with your feet in the water, everyone's waiting for you to cross, and you're the one. And it was scary because I could have been eaten yeah. by the alligators, you know, and no one believed that I was right except my father and my husband, where they said, if you believe you need to pursue this, you know, we're going to support you, follow your heart. And that's really what I did. I followed my heart, and I could have been awfully wrong. 
Um, but I also could have been awfully right. And that was, you know, when online research was born. You know, I migrated research from offline to online at the beginning, you know, convincing people that one day it's going to be the new norm. But at that time, it was ahead of itself. And, mm-hmm. and the little tricks and things that we did to get people to buy in, I mean, those are amazing stories in and of itself. I don't know how much time you have. Was there daily doubt? I mean, you're saying there, it was a risk. You never know. You Again, the analogy, you could get eaten by the alligators. Was there daily doubt? Was there weekly doubt of thinking, I mean, I think this is going to work, but what if it doesn't? Well, I mean, I remember going to the movie. I was in the package good business, and I decided to go after the movie business because in the movie business, they were two-and-a-half-minute you know, trailers. Mm-hmm. In the advertising business, it's 30-second spots. Mm-hmm. So I figured if I could conquer doing online research with video consumption – and downloads. We had 14.4 modems and 28.8 at the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, and anyone with broadband, you know, they were on at-home network, mm-hmm. was really an anomaly. It was the wealthy old men, early yep. adopters, you know. Yeah. That, if we that, could pull up the sound of... Yeah, I mean, it was... Oh. And so I had to get video to download, but I had to secure it with DRM wrappers so that no one could lift the information because trailers were, you know, a movie could have opened or closed, you know, within yep. a weekend. So we couldn't share all those trailers. So security was really important. So I remember going to a studio saying, are you, and they used online, they, they used mall research, the little mm-hmm. old person that was filling out the surveys and scratching them out, yeah. you know. And I said, well, are you 100% satisfied with how you do research today? And they said to me, well, how can anyone be 100% satisfied? I said, great, I have this crazy idea to migrate research from offline to online. It will require us testing, you know, parallel testing, blah, 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 blah. And I said, but, and I don't know what I'm doing, I said to the studio chief. I said, I don't know what I'm doing, but let's do it together. And that's how I started. And then it was easy because I could go to other studios and other studios and say, well, this studio's doing it. And there was only yeah. five studios at the time. You get one and they kind of add on top of another. And I worked with the hardest common denominator you know doing movie trailers where i got 30 spots on friday night that i had to digitize encrypt and test by monday morning if i could do that i could work on products from womb to tomb you know that that last forever and you know we used to give data six weeks later so doing 24-hour turnaround was was quite something and you know there were a lot of doubters you know of why not versus why yes you know, God, Shelley, how do you do online research and know who these people are? They could not be telling the truth. They could be lying. And I'm like, well, how do you know who you're talking to on a telephone? You know, why are you True. putting different criteria in this new methodology where you're going to shoot it down before we can celebrate, you know, the pluses to it? You know, so there was, you know, that was a, a whole journey at that stage of my life. And it was probably one of the most remarkable times that I've ever been in as an innovator, you know, failing to succeed and trying. And, you know, while I had lots of people follow me and now online research is, you know, the new norm, you can't imagine doing it the other way. Um, I'm the one that actually knows what's under the hood. I know all the different secrets of what worked and what didn't and why and why not. And and it was a, a remarkable time. And then getting others to come and hold hands and adopt and try together um, was nothing shy of, of magical and remarkable and life-changing for me. And even though you're saying, I mean, that was that was 98. I mean, that's a few years. I'm old. A, a few years after <laughs> you uh, graduated college. And, like, those, those years, I mean, people hear the stories and still they're thinking, like, oh, well, she just said it really easy. And it sounded like it was this, and this happened, and this happened. You're, I can only imagine the countless hours that you're putting in and trying to, to succeed 
before that point? Well, people have preconceived notions, and also change is scary. Change is really scary for people. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was uh, stuck on an airplane with Tony Robbins once, who, you know, I'm obsessed with. I think he's so smart. Was he selling candy bars, too, or was that? No, but, you know, he was definitely selling motivation. And I, (laughs) I didn't really understand, you know, what that was, but I was just coming from a, a corporate, you know, client that change was really hard. Migrating from mm-hmm. offline to online, you know, is all the reasons why it's not going to work versus the reasons why. It's, he says, you know, people think about things as too big of one giant step. He says, imagine you're in a hundred-story building. You push the button a hundred, you go straight to the top. Mm-hmm. It's easy. He says, but if you if the elevator's broken and you have to take the steps, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba you get to the thirtieth step, it's broken. Are you going to go backwards? Or are you going to find a way to work around it? He says, you got to break your problems into bite-sized steps, and then one day you look back and say, wow, look how far I've come. But don't make it too big an obstacle that's going to scare you, so you're going to run away. Make them tangible steps that you can actually climb, and you know. It sounds so basic, but it is yeah. so true. And so when I had all the naysayers, online research, it's not representative, it's not this, it's not that. You know, we use, you know, the whole traditional um, paper pencil. I said, well, then why don't you give your traditional research data to the studio chiefs and to the producers and directors? And let's just add in the verbatim testimony from the online surveys because it was so rich. And I don't know if you remember at the time we used to write in the open ends all this rich answers of what we thought with uh-huh. capital and bold explanations. And I said, let's just integrate that. Mm-hmm. And don't tell them it comes from an online service. Just put it in there. And next thing you knew, these producers were like, wow, where did, how did these online you know, verbatims get, how did these verbatims get so rich and so fabulous? And well, we've been doing it online. And that's how we started bringing online in, not pushing it and making people give up what they were doing, but we just kind of added it as added value until they wanted more and more. And next thing you knew, we were actually doing all of the research. Allowing online. them to see the benefit. Yeah, instead of convincing them that they need to change, because mm-hmm. that word, and that's why I love the word evolution, evolve, <laughs> instead of change, because nobody really, you know, change is scary for yeah. most people. Um, and, you know, even there was a, a person in the research business that had exclusivity with all the movie researchers. And in his contract, it actually said, we are your exclusive mall intercept research provider. So when I came into the world, the studio's like, we can't use you. We have an exclusive with a research company. I said, let me see the contract. And in the contract, it said, exclusive mall intercept. Online didn't exist at the time. I said, well, there's your loophole. Yeah. I'm online. It doesn't say anything about online. So that is how you know I actually knocked on the door. I always say there's always a yes. Mm-hmm. You just have to find it. So I just had to find that yes to get started. And I think, you know, the studios will say the other thing that made them say yes was we did it together. I said, I will share the mm. good, bad, and the everything I, I goof on, I'm going to show you. You know, I'll show you everything. We're going to do it together. Step change. And I think that's how that started at the time. Do you think a lot of people just hit that wall, that initial wall of someone saying no, and, and they're like, it's, it's not worth it, or they think it's too much of a challenge? What do you think stopped most people when, you know, like for you, when someone would have said, oh, but we already have this contract. What is it, do you think, about people that stops them at that level or maybe at the next level instead of pushing through? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, think about it. If you're going to add another thing that you have to do in parallel, it's more work. Mm-hmm. And if you're good at what you're doing already and it just kind of runs itself and you know how to do it, you know how to interpret the data, you know, it's a lot easier to stick with what you know. 
Um, so I think from a financial perspective, parallel testing is, you know, uh, not you're not going to get mm-hmm. extra money from God. So, you know, where is it coming from? I think from a time commitment and I think from um, a knowledge perspective, you know, you don't want to be vulnerable and you don't want to make mistakes. We're all afraid of making mistakes. And I then met this professor that enlightened me in so many ways. His name, he was a professor from Dartmouth and he has a box three theory because I kind of said, how will innovate, innovation in a corporate company ever happen if we're afraid to take that next step or if we don't Mm -hmm. have the money or if you try to build innovation underneath traditional standards. It doesn't really work that way. And he talks about box three boxes. Box one in a company is about managing the present. You know, you have your core, how you do things with the same people, places, things, money. The only thing you need to do in box one is become more efficient with Mm -hmm. time. But no one in box one is ever going to want to let anything go because that's what they do and that's the responsibilities they have. Box two is called selectively forgetting, that only the CEO or the boss can do, which is how do you get rid of the things in box one that just need to die a slow death? 10% of it should just go away. You need to reduce the headcount. You need to reduce the budget. And then box three is creating the future. And that's taking the 10% you save from box one and putting it into box three and letting box three build the new innovative solutions with, you know, 30% of their people under the age of 30 and one out of three people coming from box one. So you can truly create an innovative culture. And I think that's a really big epiphany with how you don't have the same mindset trying to reinvent themselves, but you put this other team in place that can create their own new rules using their own, you know, the budget that they got and, and be able to fail to succeed with permission. Anyone who has been successful, whether it's a business or anything else, they've always, you know, tried and failed things and they maybe learned things the hard way. And it is a way to learn. You can either learn it yourself or hear from someone else. Are there lessons that you've learned the hard way and what are they? And are you able to share those with other women in the girls' lounge? Yeah. I I mean, listen, I share all the time and, um, you know, you can't succeed if you don't fail Um, or you can't break boundaries if you're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think Einstein said that you can't create something new with the same mindset, you know, that got you to where you are. Um, So, you know, I share all the time and I remember one of my first reviews, you know, I thought I was the perfect employee coming to work early and staying late and keeping my lights on and pretending I was working when I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of those and asking everyone if I could help them. And I had a terrible review. Why? Because my boss told me I was spending too much time with clients and having too many lunches with them. And, and it was, you know, and that I just need to be at the, the desk and take phone orders. And how far out of college were you where in your business career? Mm, I must've been about 25. So Hmm. A long time, over 30 years ago, a long time ago. And I just remember sitting there at my review thinking, gosh, is he right? And if he is, I certainly don't want to be in that kind of work culture. I want to know who people are. I, w- I want to ask people questions. I want to be such a great account executive. And you can't be a great account executive just taking orders. I need to know who you are personally so I can help you succeed you know, in every way. And I remember looking at him, and it was one of those moments where I said to him, you know what, you're just wrong. I said, and one day you're going to realize that. I said, I think business is not about doing deals. It's about creating relationships that are sustainable. I said, people work with people they like, not with companies. And I had to follow my own heart with that one to say, do I conform and just be an order taker, or do I continue to build these relationships and prove that value down the road? Is that what drives you is, is, I don't want to say proving people wrong, but 
just knowing that you are confident in yourself. I don't even think it's proving people wrong, but it's knowing that I can be right too. So, you know, why was I never right? Because I was never the CEO in the company. So I always had to listen to this person, to this person. And had I have listened, you know, with my head versus felt with my heart, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have taken the chances that I took. Um, You know, I've been always told it's not the right time. It's not this, the linear perspective of life. And I'm not linear. You know, I color out of the the box all the time uh, mm-hmm. that might not be a pretty picture but it's um it, it's who i am you know i can't just follow the path that someone told me sometimes i zig when others zag and that's just who i am as a person and hopefully others will come with me um and that's how in my opinion innovation gets sticky i love that i heard uh, a quote once that said if, if you're good, it's okay to break rules. Just break them for a reason and know why you're breaking them. Uh, okay, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I knew why I was breaking them. I just broke them because the rules didn't make sense to me. Hmm. So maybe that comes around you to knew, the same you place. You knew that rule only, only you know, worked for a certain section or it didn't necessarily fit the mold that you had. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I have a no regret policy and that means I never wanted to look back in life and say shoulda, woulda, coulda. And that's why when I, when I started OTX, it was a lifestyle company. I didn't even know what that was. But I, I really did create the uncorporate rules where I told employees, don't miss your parents' anniversary or your kid's birthday or a soccer game or anything meaningful for you. Just cover each other's asses. You know, get your fellow coworkers. Someone might want to go on a date and say, I'll cover you to go on a date mm-hmm. if you cover me to go to my kid's soccer game. Like, institutions don't make shit happen. People do. Mm-hmm. And create those relationships with your coworkers so that you can be successful. Or I never invited people to meetings based on title. I invited them by first name, and then I would say, if anyone wants to come to any meeting, because we have no secrets, you know, come. But if you come to too many meetings you're not invited to, then you probably don't have enough to do. Or take as much vacation time as you need, but don't leave your, you know, teams hanging. You know, cover each other. And, you know, I really probably had a 99.9% retention rate. I had 250 employees in six cities, and it was because we were a family, and we shared the good, bad, and the ugly. And we didn't hide the, the, the things we screwed up on. We shared them and we, you know, worked together. Or when people would come in my office and say, oh, I have a problem, I'm like, well, let's work together on a solution. There's mm-hmm. always a solution. You just have to find it. That sounds exactly like the atmosphere that you're creating in the girls' lounge of that just being able to share and, and talk. Yes? Yeah. I, you know, I think that, you know, it's not just about talking because, you know, we can't just admire mm-hmm. the problems. It's about yes. activating solutions for change because a lot of the solutions we have today just aren't working. Mm-hmm. They're textbook, and it's not in a textbook. The best answers are in experience. And I think that um, it's what I said from the beginning. When we're all in it together, A, it's more fun. Mm-hmm. B, we have more permission to break the rules reimagine them and if we all bring them back into our companies that's when change happens anyone who is you know before the girls lounge even it's amazing to hear you talk about yourself at ces when you're starting there and anyone who's maybe going to this conference or any conference and feels alone especially for you though i mean because you would and at that point you already said you were a leader of market research you're you're doing all this business selling the companies and yet you still kind of had the the insecurity is that something for, for people listening, going in no matter what, is there, 
Will insecurity always be there? You just need to know how to tackle it? Um, you know, I I think that we all have those voices in our head. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's kind of a proven fact, and I think Harvard Business Review talked about this, that if there's a job with 10 requirements, you know, a guy, if he could do 6 out of 10, he's like, yep, I got this. He just doesn't care, and he goes straight for it. And yeah. a woman will process it, and if she feels she can't do 10 out of 10, she's like, I'm not qualified. Um, so, you know, I think that it's not even the insecurity. I mean, it is a little of that. It's that it's it's sort of being alone. I mean, girlfriends like to be surrounded by other, mm-hmm. you know, girlfriends. And so I just didn't think it would be fun wandering the floors by myself. I, I, I just had yeah. no interest in doing that. And so I would have rather not gone than go and look at interesting technology by myself. Mm-hmm. I just didn't want to do it. What can, you know, looking at, at the girls' honors and the purpose – what advice do you have for people to be able to help women empowerment? I mean, guys and girls. Like you said, this is definitely a two-way conversation. You can't just have you know, girls talking about this. You need to have guys talking about this as well and being able to encourage women. What encouragement or what would you advise for guys and for girls of how to attack this issue and be able to bring it to the forefront and be able to make change? I think, number one, stand up and stand together. You know, mm-hmm. I think power of the pack works and really does lead to tremendous impact. I think, um, you know, I always say when purpose meets passion, you're unstoppable. You know, if you believe in what you're doing, keep doing it. I think that's really important. Um, Own your strength. Don't apologize for it. Don't hide your feminine qualities. Celebrate them. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, I I think there's so many things that, you know, my girlfriend Wendy Clark says, shut that bitch up in your head, which... (laughs) I think is also, you know, quite important. Mm -hmm. And I think it starts at home. I think partnership starts at home. And my husband, even though, you know, we are um, not millennials, you know, (laughs) by any means, we were partners. There was no traditional mother-father role. We shared the responsibilities of everything from the beginning. So both of us, if we chose to, could have careers um, and be successful at that and also have successful families where my kids didn't care which one was home as long as one parent was home. And, and he is very successful in his own right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a surgeon. He's a butt doctor. He's a... <laughs> Hi, honey. <laughs> but, like, it's not it, It's not like you were saying. Like, maybe one career is, oh, this, and one career is maybe a little... I mean, you both have amazing careers, so it's amazing to hear your story of being able to both do that. We shared the responsibility. And, you know, maybe... I didn't tie the hockey skates as tight as he would. He was responsible in general for certain things, and I was responsible for Mm -hmm. the other. And he might not have been so vocal at the PTA meeting, but we never um, criticized one another. That was what he did to cover me, and that's what I did to cover him. And, you know, we just accepted that. And I think it allowed both of us to have successful careers in a very, very, very connected family. You know, and my kids were such, you know, Alex, Nikki, and Jake, such an important part of me being successful mm-hmm. in my career. They encouraged me to keep doing it because for them, that's what, you know, inspires them to, to want how they want to really raise a family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's important for any relationship, you know, whether that's a marriage or whether it's two people both starting out, and maybe even more so, both people starting out like out of college and trying to do a job and being able to have that life and work balance. It's crucial. All right, well, first of all, I don't think there's anything called work-life balance. Balance okay. is a word that you should just throw out. Because it's not a 50-50. You have work-life integration. You know, there's five aspects of your life in general. Your work, your, fam- your, your, work, your family, your community, you know, giving back, um, your friends, 
And then most importantly, the fifth one, which we always forget about, is yourself. And at different life stages, you might be able to do all of them uh, a little, or maybe you can only do a couple of them a lot. It's how you decide to choose your um, buckets, basically. And at every life stage, you might not be able to do all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, community might have to wait for a couple of years as your kids get bigger, because you're going to make the commitment for all your extra time to, you know, spend with your family. And, you know, and I think those are really important trade-offs to really decide that you have one life with many dimensions and you have to figure out how to integrate the pieces that make sense at that stage for you. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that ties in well. The, the final question, one of the final questions that I always ask people is your definition of success, you know, in a world that places maybe so much on the corporate America or on different values what do you consider your definition of success and what do you maybe help other women in the girls' lounge see as success? I mean, for me, success is being happy with who I am and what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And success is impacting change. At this stage of my um, life, I want to do things that give back and make a difference and that I'm not leaving the mess for this generation or the next generation. So it's impacting change and giving back with generosity what I wish I had rising the ranks. Does that success level, you think, is it okay for your definition of success to change throughout your life? Or that's expected, maybe? I, I think if I think life is fluid, and I think that everything you know changes and evolves and ebbs and flows, and you learn with every step you go what you want to do next. So I have no idea if I were writing a book what my next chapter would be. I just know that it kind of happens fluidly. Whether I'm right or wrong, I'm going to take that step and try. Because if you don't try, you'll never know. That's a great way to finish it off. Uh, that is the, that's the serious part of the show, but we always close. And I know you're such a, an amazing business mind. I actually reached out to a bunch of my followers and uh, – Asked them, we're going to play a game called buy or sell. And this is so I'm going to give you like up and coming business ideas or maybe people. I said, hey, do you have any a, a business idea that you've thought about and do you think it would be successful? Okay. So I'm going to give you some business ideas and I need, to, I need you to tell me, I see this maybe as a possibility. No, this could not be a possibility. You ready? Okay. But everything is a possibility. So but- I can't, <laughs> I, I, would, I would say it has potential. Buy or don't buy as much. Okay, fine. Okay. I'm going to start off. I thought this one maybe was interesting. Uber tour, where people are in their... Driver maybe is in their cars in a certain city, and people are, you know, paying them to give them a personal tour of the city from their perspective. And obviously, Uber has the ratings. That person, driver, would have the ratings, and people would be able to rent time in this Uber tour. Thoughts? I think you can do that without calling it Uber Tour. You hire an Uber driver to drive you around. Are you saying that they also well, they would tell be, you they what would the be sites a, are? They would, yeah, specifically like a tour guide for Uber. Uh, I think you have Google Earth. I think you have a lot of things to look up. I wouldn't want someone telling me okay. where I'm going. So. All right. All right. Next one is, I'm telling you, these are all really random. Maybe that's why they haven't come up yet. Uh, this one, rent a garage space in like a for like auto mechanic for something. If someone wants to do work on their car, to be able to rent a bay in a in a warehouse, and you can borrow the tools, you can actually lift your car up, have everything accessed there. Buy or sell that business idea? Do you think? Um, I don't see the scalable you okay. know options there. I mean, there's plenty of warehouse spaces that you can rent, but. I don't know about fixing your car if that's 
going to be a big business idea. I, I, this is the, the business mind that people you know, don't have. They, they're like, oh, you know, you're always walking down the street and you're like, this would make a great business. And you don't necessarily know the scalable effects. Uh, next one, healthy vending machines. Yeah, very good idea. Very good idea? Yeah. Buying that, buying that right off the bat. Uh, drone rentals. Like drone, people renting drones to be able to shoot stuff. Instead of owning it, they're very expensive. Do you see that as maybe a, a future or possible business? I think that you can rent drones now. It's, I, think, I, I think you actually can you already can't. rent drones. Oh, well, it's already a buy. Yeah. It's already a buy. Yeah, I think that that, that business exists. All right. And final one, uh, rent farm animals. Of like you're able to. <laughs> you have some very interesting friends. <laughs> I tell you, <laughs> these categories are crazy. Uh, rent rent farm animals where you uh, can go and visit them. You know, if you want to have chickens, you want to have goats or whatever, uh, that you can rent farm animals and go and visit them. Go to the zoo. Go to the zoo. There we go. I I know it was it's random. We always try to finish with something fun because we talk about a lot of serious stuff and inspiration and positivity. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of I Could Never Be. Again, for people who want to be able to learn more, at Shelly's Alice, at the Girls' Lounge. Um, and I think I'm off, but mm-hmm. femalequotient.com. Absolutely. And how, how often are events going on? All the time. And on the femalequotient.com, you can see the listings. Perfect. Perfect. Again, thank, thank you, you so much. Hopefully you guys learned something, maybe gained some positivity, some inspiration. Uh, if you're in business, to be able to speak with someone uh, who has, again, the leader in corporate America as far as market research has been incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Spita, and the entire pop up the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.